Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome. We're so glad you could each and every one of you be here with us. We hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday with whatever family and friends you were able to celebrate with, but it is good to be here this morning together. I want to start off by asking you a question. What is the first thing that comes into your mind when I say the word ambition? Think about it. What's the first thing that pops into your mind? I wanted a simple definition to use of ambition, so I looked on dictionary.com, and here's what it says. It says, ambition is an earnest desire for some type of achievement, distinction, such as power, honor, fame, or wealth, and the willingness to strive for its attainment. Is that kind of what you were thinking maybe when I said it at the beginning? Something along those lines. Maybe you're thinking of a person. Maybe you think of an ambitious person. Somebody maybe like an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs, Oprah, LeBron James, someone who's reached kind of the heights of their career and their achievements and their fame and all those things. I see ambition getting talked about a lot and kind of thrown out as a value these days, especially online. I don't know about you, but I kind of get inundated online, I feel like, with ads from fitness trainers who are challenging me to ambitiously pursue my health goals so I can be the better, hotter version of myself. I see financial gurus who are uh, saying that if I just follow their steps, if I ambitiously pursue their method, I can experience amazing financial returns. You've got the latest influencers on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and all these places, laying out their strategies for fame and success if we just ambitiously pursue whatever method is that they're telling us. We hear these messages, be a better you. You can be a better version of yourself. You can make a ton of money. You can build a business empire. You can become a famous online personality. Is this kind of what ambition is, do you think, those things? The real question for us today is what should ambition look like for the Christian? Or maybe even more so, does it even have a place in the Christian life? There's a Greek word used in the New Testament for ambition, and it only shows up three times. And all three times, it's used by the Apostle Paul. I want to take a look at them real quick with you since there's only three of them and see what Paul has to say about ambition. The first is in Romans 15, 20. Paul says this, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Next in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says this, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, pleasing to God. Those are great verses, right? Doesn't sound much like uh, what we just use for examples, though. Uh, doesn't sound much like the definition necessarily of ambition that we just used. I want to take a look at the third instance of this verse being used and this is kind of where we're going to spend most of our time. If you have your Bible or a Bible app, you want to open up to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
And then you can try saying that to each other. First Thessalonians, it's a tongue twister. It'll also be on the screens though. So similarly to what we just read in 2 Corinthians, when Paul starts out this passage in chapter four, he's saying to the Christians there in this city of Thessalonica that he wants to give them instructions on how to live a life that pleases God. And when we get down to verse 11, this is what he says, that part of what that looks like. He says, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Hold on a minute. That really doesn't sound like the definition of ambition that we used earlier, does it? Be honest. How many of you, you can even raise your hand, when I asked you to think about ambition at the beginning, thought of anything having to do with a quiet life? I don't really see any hands. And if you do, I'm not sure I believe you that that's what you were thinking. (laughs) Let's read the rest of these verses, verse 11 and verse 12 in chapter four of 1 Thessalonians and see what Paul is getting at here. He says, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So my first conclusion about these verses, which I have four of them for you, is that ambition is good when it is pointed in the right direction. Ambition is good when it's pointed in the right direction. In all three of those verses, all three of those instances where that word is used, Paul is saying that we should be ambitious. We should strive for a particular thing. Another way in this passage that this verse, that word ambition is often translated is to make it your aim. So think of an archer shooting a bow. Any, any hunters, bow hunters in the room? If you're, whole, if you're aiming your arrow, your bow at the target, and you let it fly, and it's pointed in the right direction, it's pointed accurately at where it's supposed to go, it will go where it's supposed to go and hit the target. And the same is true of our ambition as Christians. When it's aimed at the right things, ambition is good, and it helps our life to hit the target that God intends for us. But what about quietness, though? A quiet life Those two words, ambition and quietness, don't really seem to go together. Seems almost like an oxymoron. Shouldn't we be pursuing big and grand things? Shouldn't we be going after things in a big and loud way? Ambition and quietness might seem like oxymorons, but as we dig into this a little deeper, I think we'll see that that's not true because a quiet life can actually speak volumes, which is my second observation here. A quiet life can actually be really loud and say a lot. We live in a loud and noisy time, I find. I I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm getting shouted at all the time. You have politicians, you got political pundits that are sometimes literally shouting and wanting us to join in with their cause or join in with their cries for whatever their issue is. 
We've got wars literally raging around the world and we're all being asked by so many voices to take a stand or to take a side. We've got celebrities of all kinds that are constantly being thrown in our faces, you know, big, charismatic, loud personalities, sometimes that are famous just for being famous. Really, why do we even know the name Kardashian, right? The crazy thing, if you think about it though, is with all these technologies that we have, the social media platforms we have available to us, anybody can be a celebrity today. Anybody could be famous. It's actually not that hard to get a following. All you have to do is post something online about a controversial topic or weigh in on the latest scandal or the pick up on the latest trends and you too can have your 15 minutes of fame and you can stand out from the crowd. I don't know, for me though, with all that noise and all that pressure, can't we use some more, some more quietness, some more peace in all that noise? One commentator talking about this passage says it this way, talking about a quiet life. He says, it basically means to be at rest. The word here was used of silence after speech rest after labor, peace after war, and the like. It was also used of tranquility or peace of mind. Here it is used to urge the living of a calm and restful life. Instead of allowing them to succumb to fanatical excitement, Paul desires to recall them to restfulness of mind and a balanced outlook upon life if they will develop a quiet and restful attitude, the outward manifestations of restlessness will cease. There's a lot of restlessness in the world, isn't there? I feel it myself. There's a lot of restlessness in my own heart, in my life many times, but I think that God is pointing us towards a better way to live than that. Not striving after 15 minutes of fame and then we burn out, not ceaselessly pushing to achieve the next greatest thing that may not even last. No, I think God has a better way to live for us. And I would sum this up, and I hope you remember these two words with the words, ordinary faithfulness. I believe what God is calling all of us to, no matter what our life looks like, is ordinary faithfulness. And I want to tell you a story about someone that I have seen uh, live this out, this kind of life. And that is my father, Greg. My dad worked basically the same job his entire adult life. He didn't make any waves or climb any corporate ladders. He wasn't flashy in his personality. He wasn't a charismatic person, but he had a steadiness and a quiet wisdom to him that people he worked with were constantly coming to him and asking for his advice. He was not over the top with the way he uh, shared his faith, um, but all his coworkers certainly knew he was a Christian and they, they knew and saw over time that that impacted everything about his life. And what I saw as his kid is one of my most vivid memories. Every morning, him at the table with his Bible open, reading it before work. Every year at the church we were at growing up, someone would nominate my dad to be an elder. And I think he was certainly qualified for it, but he would turn it down every year 
because he felt like with nine kids at home, <laughs> he couldn't do justice to what he felt like was his first ministry if he was to take on you know, a, a, an official formal leadership role in the church like that. Ordinary faithfulness. I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about my dad a little bit later, but to be clear, ordinary faithfulness doesn't look the same for everyone. Not everyone is gonna have uh, the same personality. Not everyone's gonna have the personality that my dad did or that you do as each other. You're not all gonna have the same jobs or professions or pursuits in life. And certainly not everyone's gonna have nine kids. Some of you may be in jobs even now or your personalities may be such that you are in a more upfront kind of role. You're more in the spotlight and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the God calls us to different things. Some of us have more quiet behind the scenes kinds of jobs and lives and personalities. But no matter what those things look like in your specific situation, each of us can pursue this kind of quiet, faithful life, even in the midst of that. We can still focus on being faithful in the ordinary everyday things. And we can also have the peace of mind and the rest that comes from being secure in Jesus. As we keep reading here in 1 Thessalonians 4, I feel like Paul kind of slaps us in the face a little bit with what he says next. He says, mind your own business. When I hear that, when I read it, I think of myself probably saying that to my eight-year-old twin brother, right? That's how I hear it. I don't think that's what Paul is saying though. Uh, when, I, when we read that, we probably shouldn't hear it in the voice of a little kid saying it to their nosy sibling. I think what Paul is saying here is that our business is the only one we can really mind anyway. That's my next observation here. Our business is the only one that we can really do anything about, the one that we can really pay attention to. I think it's important to say upfront about minding our own business in this context is that it does not mean we take, you know, turn a blind eye to people and to needs around us. But I think it is a call for us to focus first and foremost on our own spiritual growth, on our own life that God has given to us and to avoid the unnecessary distractions and the comparisons that can take us off track from what God has for us. You know, in the second book of Thessalonians, the second letter that Paul writes to that church, he calls some people there in that church busybodies, which is kind of the image, I think, we all know what that means probably. And that's the image we get in this verse when he says to mind your own business. People that were involved in all kinds of things, they were real noisy and doing, doing stuff all the time, but not much that was very productive. They were caught up in other people's lives, in other people's business instead of their own. And I think that Paul would say the same thing to us. You know, when we live in a world where there's constantly people telling us to pay attention, we have, again, an entertainment industry whose whole goal is to tell us all about other people's lives, other people who are more famous. I think it can be a lot harder to look in the mirror <laughs> and pay attention to what's going on in our own life sometimes than it is to pay attention to everyone else's life. Because when we look in the mirror and we look at our own lives, it can be hard, right? We see our struggles. We see our issues that we wish weren't there or that we have to keep working on. 
And when the whole culture around us is filled with all these other people's lives and filled with gossip and what everyone else is doing, it can be difficult to be focused on what God has in front of us in our life. I love this quote that I just heard this past week from C.S. Lewis. It gets right to the heart of this issue. He says, those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by incessantly thinking about the sins of others. Kind of stings a little bit, I think, if you think about it. But it's so true. The reality is that our life is the only one that we have. Our life is the one that God has given to us, not somebody else's life. Our life is the one where we get to experience firsthand the grace and the mercy of Jesus as we walk with him day in, day out. Our life is the one we have the chance to use for God's glory and for the good of other people. So getting caught up too much in what other people are doing, whether that's online or across the hall, it just takes us away from what God has for us and robs us of the joy that God has for us in our life. The last thing Paul says here that we should ambitiously pursue as part of this quiet life is working with our hands, which leads me to the fourth observation. Work is good and it's good for us. I'll say it again. Work is good and good for us. When do you think that the idea of work first shows up in the Bible? It's gotta be after sin, right? It's gotta be after the fall, I'm sure. Actually, if you read Genesis, just the first couple chapters, work shows up right away. Genesis chapter two, verse 15 says that God put Adam in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And that's something that was part of God's original design, his original intention of a world that he says was very good. Of course, after the fall, you know, work became more difficult, became more complicated because of sin and all those effects. But that original intention of God that we were created and designed to work is still standing today. Work gives us a sense of purpose. It gives us a sense of accomplishment and achievement in doing something. It can be creative. It can even reflect something of God's nature as creator when we're creative in our work. And then just like I think Adam and Eve in the garden, at its best, work actually represents partnering with God in what he's doing in the world. So my challenge to all of us today, myself included, is that we wouldn't despise ordinary work. We wouldn't despise those ordinary responsibilities that we have. You know, each of us is called to make the effort that we can to take care of the responsibilities that God has given to us, which are unique to each of us. It might be in your job. It might be in your profession. doesn't matter whether that's a, a physical labor kind of profession that you work at or an office job or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. That's the work that has been given to you. If you're a student, it might be your schoolwork, your studies. That's the work that God has given to you. It may be chores around the house. Whatever it is, the responsibilities that God has put in front of you, that is the work that he has given you to do. Colossians 3.23, which you may be familiar with, says it this way, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart 
as working for the Lord and not for human masters. And finally, in these verses here, Paul says that we should work hard for this reason so that we're not dependent on others. I don't think he's saying this to be, say that we should be independent, as in, I don't need anyone else. You know, we, we need God for sure. We are all dependent on him literally for our next breath. And we need other people. We need the community of faith that we have around us. So in a sense, we're called to be interdependent. But I think what he's saying here is something that Pastor Rex often talks about. And that's a call to be responsible stewards of the resources and the time and everything else that God has given to us. So no matter how much or how little of that he's given, we're called to work at it so that we can be generous and giving towards those around us, especially the people that are in need. Work with our hands so that we can live in an outward kind of way towards other people. So if this is kind of what the Bible and the New Testament presents to us as what ambition is for, these kind of things, how do we point our lives in this direction? Because it's not very specific. So I want to finish up by looking quickly at three ways that we can embrace the power and the impact of the ordinary life that each of us has. The first one is that we need to live for the opinion of the one who really matters. In a world that is so consumed, again, with other people's opinions, with celebrities, with all these different things, being ordinary, being content with living kind of an ordinary life can be really hard, can it? We live in a world that says we're supposed to stand out. It says, everyone should notice me. Everyone should pay attention to me. And that can be really difficult to live counter to that, especially when it feels like nobody is recognizing maybe the effort that we are putting out. How many of you have been that kind of place where you're working hard? Maybe it's in your job and your boss just doesn't seem to notice. Maybe it's in school. If you're a student and you're working hard, you're doing your best, but your teacher doesn't seem to notice. Maybe your grades don't even reflect what you feel like the work you're putting in should be. And it can be really discouraging in those moments to feel like nobody sees, that nobody cares. And it can be tempting to give up on this ordinary faithfulness when it seems like no one is paying attention. But if there's nothing else you walk away with today, I want you to know that there is someone who sees you. There is someone who sees your ordinary efforts. One of my favorite names for God, because he's given all kinds of different names throughout scripture. We sang about that this morning. Even if you notice the line in one of the songs we sang, there's a lifetime worth of worship in the nuance of your names we sang. But God's given all these different names. And one of my favorites is in Genesis chapter 16. And if you read there, it's the story of Hagar, who was the servant of Abraham and Sarah. And if you know the story, Abraham actually gets the servant Hagar pregnant in an attempt to take God's promise of an heir for Abraham kind of into his own hands and make it happen. Of course, this causes all sorts of problems. Sarah gets jealous. She starts mistreating Hagar, who flees into the wilderness and is out in the middle of nowhere on her own. And alone and on the run there, God appears to her out of nowhere. 
He tells her to go back to Abraham and Sarah. He tells her that he has a great promise for her and that her son too will be the father of a great people. And in response to that, she calls him as God, she calls him El Roy. El Roy, which means the God who sees me. I think we need to hear that. The God who sees me. We all want to be seen. We all want to be noticed. We go searching for it in all kinds of ways that are fleeting, that don't last. We go searching after clicks and likes and thumbs ups (laughs) that don't mean anything ultimately. We go searching for it in ways that are temporary, but there is a God who really sees us, your creator who knows you. He sees you and sees even your ordinary efforts. And those things to him are not meaningless and they're not unnoticed. He sees us. So maybe ask yourself on a regular basis, am I living to be known by others or am I living to be known by Jesus? Am I living to be known by others or am I living to be known by Jesus, the one who really matters? Next, to aim our lives in life in God's direction, I think we need to make our daily life our witness. I've asked a lot of questions, but here's another one. Are you living your life, your everyday ordinary life in such a way that if someone just watched you for a while, if somebody just paid attention to the way you live your normal life day to day, they would be drawn to Jesus through that? It's actually the reason Paul gives here in verse 12 for why we should live this way. He says it's so that that ordinary faithfulness would win the respect of outsiders win the respect of outsiders. And one of our philosophies of ministry here at Grace, and this is perhaps something you've heard Pastor Rex say many times too, is that your life is your ministry. Every one of us, your life is your ministry. And I think what Paul is saying here is that your life is also your witness. Your life is a witness to the watching world. I've noticed this a lot, and maybe you have too, that the church in our culture is under a lot of scrutiny. People can be very critical of Christianity these days. And unfortunately, there's plenty of leaders at times out there who are preaching a message of holiness and fidelity to Jesus and his ways. And then they're found out to be living contradictory to what they're preaching. And every time this happens, it's so disappointing. And the reputation of the church in the world around us and the reputation of God uh, suffers and is tarnished in the eyes of the people that are paying attention And that's discouraging for sure. But we need to remind ourselves that our faith is in a perfect savior, not in imperfect leaders, right? Our faith is in the perfect savior. So rather than let that discourage us when we see those kind of things happen, we should realize that every one of us, every one of you has the opportunity to change that perception that people have of who Jesus is and what Christianity is all about. We have an opportunity to change people's perspective by the way we live our ordinary life. So are we living in such a way that gives people a true understanding of who Jesus is and what Christianity is all about. We might not be able to change the perspective of all those people who read news stories about fallen leaders, but we can change and affect and influence the perspective and the understanding of Christianity 
in the lives and the minds of the people that we interact with on a day-to-day basis by showing them who Jesus is in the way we live our lives. How much different would the world be as a whole? How much different would our culture be if that's what Christians were known for? Lives of ordinary faithfulness. If that's what the church was known for, regular, ordinary, faithful Christians who were living out that out in the world and who were representing Jesus well. Make your life, your ministry, and your witness. Finally, our last part of this ambitious life that we should lead should lead us to focus on everyday worship and disciplines. I'm a big fan of reading the Bible in different translations. I don't know how many of you might do that, pick up a new translation occasionally. It can be really helpful in helping us to understand what the original words of the scripture said, because as you may or may not know, I would assume you do, but the Bible wasn't written in English. So it has to go through a translation process. And sometimes there's words and phrases that are used that don't have a direct equivalent in English or in whatever language it's being translated into. So when we read from multiple versions, it helps to give us a better sense of what the original authors were saying. And I think we really see the helpfulness of this when we look at some of those really familiar passages that we've read over and over again, and we know what they are in a certain version, maybe we've memorized them in whatever version we've heard them. And when we read them in a new version, it really brings them to life. So those are paraphrase and not an actual, you know, a specific word for word translation. Uh, the Message Bible, I think, did this for a lot of people, kind of brought new life to the scriptures when it came out in the mid 90s. How many of you have read from the Message translation? Yeah. I read it a lot at the time. And one passage that really stood out to me and I've remembered uh, vividly to this day and found so helpful is Romans 12, one and two, something you've probably heard many times, but listen to it in this message version and what it has to say uh, for our topic today. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. I love that because it reminds us in the wording that he uses there, that even that mundane and ordinary and really regular stuff that we all do every day can be placed before God as an offering of worship. Dishes, Diapers, raking the leaves, worship. When we view every action that we take as a potential act of worship, it changes our perspective on our life. It changes the way we see things. And through that perspective shift, God changes us. And the same man who wrote this uh, paraphrase of the Bible, the message is often quoted, Eugene Peterson is his name. He wrote, Uh, this version. And he often is quoted as saying that the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. I love that. 
the long obedience in the same direction. He's basically saying the Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. And even if you don't like the idea of running a marathon, (laughs) which I don't, (laughs) that's actually really encouraging because what that means, if you think about it, if the Christian life is a marathon, that means that if we stumble in the first hundred yards or somewhere along the way, there's lots of room for us to stand back up and to keep going. It means that we're perhaps still headed in the right direction, even if we stumble and fall. And also it means that the goal of this marathon, unlike one you might run in real life, is not to finish first. The goal of this marathon for us is just to finish. It's just to keep going, to keep persevering, to keep following Jesus in the ordinary things. Even sometimes if we have to walk or even crawl our way to the finish line. We need tools along the way too in this marathon. And some of the most helpful things are the spiritual disciplines that the church has recognized all throughout history. Regular, ordinary things that we can do like prayer, reading the Bible, being generous, practicing generosity, practicing simplicity, fellowship and community with other Christians, taking time to rest and Sabbath, worship, even times of silence and solitude. All these things are not flashy. They're not upfront. They're, they're quiet often. They're often not noticed, not seen. And they're not always easy either, which is why we call them disciplines. But just like physical disciplines that will train your body, if you're trying to become an athlete, spiritual disciplines form us and shape us over time. And they build those spiritual muscles in us that shape the way we interact with the world, the way we interact with people around us. It makes us more like Jesus. Each of us, only has the life that God has given us, the one life, this ordinary everyday life that's in front of us. And I wholeheartedly believe that some of you will be used by God to do amazing and extraordinary things, maybe things that are talked about by Christians or the world for generations to come. But we don't know what that's gonna look like. You can't right now in your life pinpoint and say, this is how God is definitely gonna use me someday. You don't know what that, how that might happen or when it might happen, but what you do know is about the life you have in front of you. And I think sometimes we forget, even as we look at the different heroes of our faith in scripture, the heroes of the faith that we can see in church history, is that in between these great moments that we still tell stories of and we love to look at, they had ordinary lives. They had everyday ordinary faithfulness that they had to engage in too. And when we see these big moments of faith and these big acts of obedience to God, those were undoubtedly shaped by the everyday ordinary moments in between. They didn't come out of nowhere, in other words. And the same is true for us. Earlier, I told you a little bit about my father. And what I didn't tell you is that just before I turned 18, my father died suddenly of a heart attack. And there's many stories I could tell you about the way that God was faithful to me and my family in the years that came. I'd love to share them with you some other time. But today I would love to just end with one example from his life and his death that I think exemplifies this quiet, faithful 
ordinary faithfulness. And we held my dad's funeral uh, in the same church that I went to growing up. Um, attended it for most of my childhood and teen years. And I think my most vivid memory from the service was singing the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It was really hard to sing in those moments, but it was a declaration of the fact that we needed God's comfort. We needed his presence um, in the midst of our grief. And I just remember the room full of people singing it and feeling like the rafters were shaking with the sound of it. But even more than that, there, the church was full of people. I don't think there was an empty seat in the place. There was literally people standing. Um, and remember, I said my dad was a quiet, ordinary guy. But even more than that full sanctuary of the church, it was the stream of people who came through the night before and the morning before the service to acknowledge who my dad was and to pay their respects that really stuck with me. And there was one person in particular as we were waiting in the line to kind of receive people the morning of the service, there was a face that was, I saw in the distance that I recognized as a familiar face, but I couldn't place him. I didn't remember who he was. But as he got closer and got up to us, he introduced himself as Dr. Mark Tyrone, my dad's podiatrist. Years before my dad had some issues with his feet and had gone to this doctor just a couple times uh, to ha get some help from that. I don't think anyone from my family had seen him in probably at least five or six years. But Dr. Tyrone went on to tell us that just that morning, he randomly picked up the newspaper and read the obituaries, which is not something he normally did. And when he saw the news of my father's passing, he had to literally kind of leave where he was and come to the service and come and tell us about the impact that my dad had had on him. He couldn't even stay for the service itself, but he took the time to come in the midst of his busy day, in the midst of his job, to tell us that in their brief, ordinary interactions, just a few times at podiatry appointments, my dad and my dad's faith had made a lasting impact on him. And I don't know if my dad ever kind of directly shared the gospel with him. I don't know what happened to this doctor after this point. But I know based on what he told us that day, that something in the brief conversations, in the ordinary interactions that they had in the doctor's office, the foot doctor, no less, that something about my dad's life and his witness of his life had won the respect of outsiders that his life had made an impact on this man. And I hope the same can be said for our lives as well, because we don't know what the ways that God will use us, but we do know for certain that if we make it our ambition to faithfully and quietly follow Jesus in our everyday ordinary life, that God will take that. He will take those actions and those efforts and through his mighty power, through his faithfulness, that works in us and through us, he will accomplish more than we might ask or even imagine. Father, we want to praise you and thank you for your faithfulness to us. You are so good. And it's only because of how faithful you are to us. As your word says, you are faithful even when we are faithless. And because of that, we look to you and we ask that you would give us what we need to press on 
that you would give us what we need to continue on in this ordinary everyday life that's in front of us. That we would be ready for the ways that you might want to use us. And there, yes, if there's big things, if there's grand things, if there's things that people see, then praise you. And if it's just everyday things, if it's just continuing on and loving you and loving the people around us, would you give us by your spirit what we need to do that and to continue on and to hear your words, to hear your encouragement, to know that you see us, that we would live for your approval, that we would live uh, for your well done. In Jesus' name, amen.